Welcome back to part two of Kaya's story. Last week we heard all about her upbringing and the impact on her of the lack of ethnic diversity in her community and work. Today we are going to hear more about Kaya's work around cannabis education and activism and breaking down some of those stereotypes surrounding cannabis use. We also wrap up on her time in Canada and how it's helped to challenge and dismantle her own internalized racism. When you were in Canada, did you, is that when you started your real passion for cannabis or did that start before? My passion for cannabis has definitely been since I was a lot younger. Being Asian, you have tendencies to not be able to consume alcohol. And I just happened to be one of those people where alcohol just doesn't really work with my body. And so it was never really something that I could use as a relaxant or a social lubricant, something that that's another thing I really forced myself to do was to drink champagne and those sorts of things. I really disliked it, but something I felt like I had to do to be accepted within a society that's very alcohol based. And so it was something always recreational for me, particularly to deal with a lot of the amount of stress that I was putting myself through also, that was one way that I just counted the stress to be able to deal with all of that. And it wasn't until I really got sick that I, I discovered the medicinal benefits of it. And so, yeah, it really made me understand why cancer patients need it, why people who struggle with pain management or ailments or even things like endometriosis, you know, like why all of those people can benefit from a plant that can do things that a pharmaceutical can also do without the side effects that the pharmaceuticals come with. So that really set me on a path to kind of chase cannabis into Canada and knowing that they were approaching legalization, I thought it would be a really good place to go to, to pursue that career. And so that's what really made me go into Vancouver and move there. I'd never been to mainland North America before I'd packed my bags to move there and arrived. <laughs> and so I was very pleased when I got to the city and I was like, this is actually a really nice city. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you really just jumped straight in. <laughs> yeah. I jumped straight in, not actually thinking too much about it. And other people would ask me like, oh yeah, so what's Vancouver like as a city? And I was like, hmm, great question. <laughs> I don't actually know much about it. I just know that I will be there soon. So it was, yeah, really kind of just jumping into the dark with that one. What is the culture around cannabis like in Canada compared with here? The culture is definitely, particularly when I first arrived, it was, it's referred to as the golden era of cannabis because it was right before legalization took place, but there were lots of dispensaries, lots of events were happening. All of the marketing regulations hadn't really come into place. And so there was like a real kind of Gatsby era of it. It was really um, vibrant, lots of events happening. You could access cannabis basically like a farmer's market style. You could go into a shop, obviously show your ID, go into a shop and smell different cannabis cultivars and pick and choose whatever you wanted. Kind of like going to buy a really premium coffee and getting it roasted on the spot or selecting a fine cheese, you know? Mm. It was like a real experience. And you could always smell it on the street too. Like if you were walking around, you would smell it and people wouldn't really look at you funny if you smoked it. You did have to kind of be careful where you smoked it or consumed it at all, but no one would ever 
bat an eyelid really if you had a joint in your hand and you were walking down the street just to confirm so it's legalized in canada not just decriminalized it's completely legalized for medicinal and adult use recreational for the last two and a half years now almost coming on three years i think so even then in that time it's really changed the perception of cannabis you know, they say in Canada as well, if they did what New Zealand did and left it up to a referendum, it may have not passed. But Canada just made the decision to legalize it and then let the provinces decide what that looks like. So the stigma around cannabis definitely existed, but there was a much larger community of people who knew about, who knew more than cannabis beyond its stigma. So that really helped me in finding a community of particularly women who consume cannabis, but also hold down a job and do different passion projects. And, you know, they're kind of making it all work. And cannabis was part of their lifestyle as a wellness tool versus the thing that you go and smoke at a party, which is very much what New Zealand's culture is like. It's, and even then you could, you would go to a party and sometimes you'd be the only person smoking weed and, you'd get funny looks from people and, and you really do have to kind of be careful about who you're consuming around, where you're consuming it. And even just the stereotype that you're then labeled with once someone knows that you smoke cannabis. Pothead. Exactly. You're a stoner. You're lazy. You don't really achieve anything. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think again, that comes down to single narrative storytelling. People, have that stigma because they only see the negative sides and the media only portray the negative side as well. They only portray one stigma around cannabis. And a lot of people don't also understand, like if you look at why cannabis was prohibited in the first place, it was actually to discriminate against Mexicans when they were immigrating into the U S and they were bringing marijuana into the country and Richard Nixon and another guy, Harry Anslinger at the time, they really wanted to latch on to something to try and kind of tarnish their reputation. And so they created reefer madness was all based on that. It was said to make you crazy and all these things. And it was made to also give a reason for law enforcement to criminalize these people. And so they took the term marijuana and turned it into a really racist word and so you know people within society feared the word marijuana and then also feared mexicans because they were associated to that and that was really the only major reason that prohibition really exists to this day because there were scientific papers at the time that you know universities in the u.s presented to harry anslinger and people like you know politicians like them at the time to say it's not as harmful as you're saying it is. And you basically shouldn't do this is what their recommendations were, but they didn't. And then as soon as that prohibition happened, it kind of then changed a lot globally as well. And that narrative has remained to this day. That's super interesting to hear about the the history of marijuana in like the U S context, but Mm -hmm. yeah. So you actually started a podcast or you're starting a podcast Mm -hmm. (laughs) talking about marijuana. Yeah. So the term we prefer to use is cannabis just because of those racist connotations around marijuana, unfortunately for Mexicans, because that's 
their word, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, I created this podcast called Bellas Who Blaze because based on the New Zealand referendum results and just through my day-to-day conversations with different people around cannabis, there is so much misinformation out there and miseducation around cannabis and what it can do for health, but also it's, you know, the kind of fears that people have around this plant and what it might do for their, what it might do to their children or to themselves. And, you know, I really want to bring a different perspective to cannabis, but also educate people on why people are using it, how it helps people, and also ways that you can use it to integrate it. Because I feel like in New Zealand, we have such a binge drinking culture. We treat alcohol as something that you consume a lot of. And it's it's almost like if you're not getting super drunk, then what's the point? And because of that kind of underlying culture, every other substance gets treated the same way. You know, people have three double shot coffees in one day, just that overconsumption. And it's teaching people actually a little goes a long way with cannabis. And it's also you know, someone might have one bad experience with cannabis and put it down to every experience of cannabis being bad. But actually, if I translate it into alcohol terms, just because you have one really bad night on tequila doesn't mean you're going to stop drinking at all. You're probably going to try gin or wine or, you know, you explore other alcohols and cannabis is very much the same. Just because one type didn't work for you doesn't mean another one isn't going to. And it's it's a, it's a process of discovering yourself and the relationship with the plant, similar to alcohol. Some people just know the Chardonnay is the one to go for, and they'll just stick to that for the rest of their life. And similar to that. And also just busting myths around it and also starting a conversation. Because a lot of people I've heard say there's not enough education around it, and that's why I voted no. Or I wasn't clear on what this is about. And didn't want to do their own research. So I'm bringing it to you. It's crazy to me, the results of that referendum, how people voted no to cannabis, but saying yes to euthanasia Mm. without really reading what the referendum for euthanasia actually was Mm -hmm. and not actually looking at the law because you weren't voting on whether you agreed with euthanasia or not. You were voting on whether you thought that particular legislation was appropriate. And I read through it and I was like, no way. Like, mm-hmm. there is not enough autonomy here. And plus a whole raft of other things. And I think for a certain demographic of cannabis user, it doesn't affect their day-to-day. You know, they buy it from someone, a friend, really discreetly. They'll just consume it at home to help them be creative or relax, etc. And that's fine for those people. And that's a lot of what I hear is if people are getting it now, why why should it change? Why should we legalize it if it's just going to stay the same? Like people are still going to use it regardless. So why is there a need to change the law? And you don't understand. Well, actually, because you're a Pākehā consumer, you're actually okay. But Māori and Pacific Islanders are disproportionately affected by this law because they're the ones doing time for it for exactly the same thing that you're doing. And I think it really just doesn't make sense in my brain when there are legal licensed companies out there creating and cultivating medicinal cannabis 
and cannabis products to export to other legal markets and you're still penalizing people for basically the exact same thing but locally that that stuff just doesn't sit and well this is where me. like education and and good conversation comes in because okay fair enough you may not have known that but now that you do what are you going to do yeah exactly so Exactly. And just getting people to understand that it's not as scary as the media has portrayed it to be because people associate cannabis with synthetic cannabis, you know, because the media have coined that term synthetic cannabis. And so they relate it to the actual cannabis plant when they're absolutely nothing alike. One is completely synthetic, has no properties at all that are similar to cannabis itself, but People die from using synthetic cannabis and so they're going, you know, it's so dangerous, my child could die or I could die or, you know, my friend could go crazy or whatever. Yeah. What would you like to see change in New Zealand with regards to cannabis use? I think I would definitely like to see it legalized with more of a framework around, you know, how people can use it, how people can access it at at a more accessible price point because Right now, we have a medicinal cannabis program that exists, but the cost to purchase those products is way too high for most people who are potentially on a disability benefit because they are managing so much pain and, you know, different physical ailments in their body that they can't work, etc. People like that can't access a medicine that could potentially cost them $1,200 a month or $800 a month or whatever. And then also just the understanding of how those different medicines actually work for different ailments. So someone who is you know, managing pain using opioids is going to need a much higher concentration of certain cannabinoids and cannabis than someone managing, you know, back pain, for example, or to sleep, etc. And just educating on that, but also having a regulatory framework that supports those things, but also makes sure that people who have kept that industry, regardless of it being, you know, in the illicit market or gray market alive and have all this knowledge from growing underground for, you know, generations or whatnot to make sure that those sorts of people are still included in this industry. Because one thing that's happened in Canada is that a lot of those people are being cut out because of barriers to entry, such as mainly capital. And even though cannabis is a really new burgeoning industry in Canada, it's still also majority Pākehā. And that's really unfortunate because the people that have kind of kept it alive are not reflected in that representation. So you're planning to go back to Canada? Um, that's definitely on the cards, but I really am just waiting to see how this pandemic kind of pans out, what happens with vaccinations, what happens with New Zealand's border as well. Mm. I don't think I wouldn't look to leave until the borders opened at the very least, uh, because I don't really want to be stuck not being able to come back home. Mm. How integral do you think your experience in Canada has been to you or has been to all these realizations that you've had about your own background and identity? It's been a huge learning experience to move there and to really discover my own identity, but also see other people living the identity that I've always had in my mind 
and seeing them enjoy it to the fullest and understanding, oh, actually I can enjoy it to the fullest too. And I can embrace who I am a hundred percent and not be alienated from anyone. And that was a big learning for me. And even just being amongst a community that is open to talk about things like discrimination, racism, cultural identity, your own self identity, all of those things, people who had really done the work themselves as well and being able to share common experiences or things that they've learned that they're sharing with you and their own insights that then open up different avenues for you as well has been really helpful. And even having a group, um, I have a few friends that we have a biweekly book club with where we really do a lot of learning around racism and how our own, you know, intersectionality plays into how we view the world, etc., and how that might be influencing our own internalized biases and racism and, you know, reading different books and having those discussions and bringing up, you know, things that might be happening in terms of current events that relate to different scenarios or just having a space to really have those challenging conversations, but much needed that really fuel the, the learning side for me has been such a benefit to have a safe community to have those conversations in and go, Hey, do you think this is appropriation or, mm. you know, just bouncing those certain ideas around or like, should I be offended by this thing mm. that happened or that's great that you have yeah. that support and community around you we can talk about those things because mm, yeah. yeah I think that's very important to understand and to be able to talk about as well yeah and it really started with you know at the start of coronavirus obviously all all Chinatowns across the world were hit really hard for some reason everyone just stopped eating Chinese food uh, because they thought they might get the virus weird uh, <laughs> but they didn't stop eating Italian food when it was raging in Italy mm-hmm weird Mm -hmm. um but as that happened a lot of crime against asian americans really increased and there were reports of local local incidents etc and so me and a bunch of my asian friends got together and one of them suggested like hey do you want to do this i holler back you know defense course it's online and you just kind of arm yourself with tools to be able to defend yourself should you be subject to a xenophobic attack And when that kind of got brought up in our group chat, I just thought it was a real moment where I realized, I guess I've been living in this happy multicultural bubble in Vancouver that this was the moment the bubble kind of burst a little and the reality came back to me that I am still an Asian woman living in a majority white society and that I do have to think about these things. I can't just go on the street and put my headphones in and, you know, be carefree about whoever might be walking behind me or whoever might come onto the train, etc. And even just having that group of people to then go through that experience together was so rewarding because it felt like we weren't alone. And that's something that I hadn't had growing up. Like we talked about, it felt very alone living through those things. Yeah, for sure. And I think something that I've kind of realized as well, like so many people are so performative when it comes to this sort of stuff. And I think just speaking from personal experience, because I've been more outspoken recently on my social media, for example, about the violence against Asians. And it's just, it's like shouting into the void. 
And even people who you think would feel affected by it, it's just blank. Mm. Maybe it's not other people's way of expressing themselves to speak out like this. Maybe they're doing work elsewhere, but it can honestly sometimes feel so isolating. So it's really good that you have a group that, you know, is like-minded and supportive. And that's what we felt too, you know, when we were first learning about how to defend ourselves, how to, how to divert certain conflict um, that's, you know, motivated by race, etc we realized actually we don't have a space to be able to have these conversations. Like who are we going to talk to when we have these things to discuss? And also like, what does our own advocacy look like? And when we kind of all thought about it ourselves, I realized actually my own advocacy begins with myself and how to best be the advocate that I can get behind. Because some people are very good at, calling people out and being very vocal about about it and then being able to take that rebuttal versus I'm I'm not as like I am still outwardly I do still post things that I feel people should be made aware of or certain points of view or certain certain you know certain racial uh discriminations etc but at the same time when I thought about okay where do I want to influence the change? I realize that I have to still first be able to speak to the change I want to see and be able to articulate that based on like theories that exist or, you know, factual things that I can latch onto to be able to communicate that to someone. But it was so good learning about those different stages in particular books like you know, because my own internalized racism also had things like tone policing, you know, where certain people get get offended that someone's really angry about something and you're like, whoa, 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 you need to like change your tone about that. But actually, no, they shouldn't and they don't have to because that's their lived experience that they're talking about and understanding that, you know, even myself, like I was tone policing myself when I thought about it and being able to learn and unpick those things to then have those conversations with, you know, more of my Pākehā friends or the ones that are open to have those conversations. Cause I have to say not all of them are, or not all of them contribute, you know, like maybe in a group of three or four people or Pākehā around me, you know, one person might be the key person or like one person is the spokesperson <laughs> and then everyone else stays silent, you know? Yeah. So I'm just having a conversation with essentially just, me and someone else i don't get the other perspectives of people yeah but at least i can start it and maybe you know they're probably on their own journey to discover those sorts of things and they've got their own things to work through so if i can just provide things that are that are easy to understand in a way that's broken down um even though it sounds like you're doing a lot i feel like that's where my my skills and also where my passion lies kind of come together to be able to have those conversations. But then I meet other people from different communities who are already having that same conversation as well. And so I can then jump off that level and use everything that I've learned to have deeper conversations with those sorts of people, which I really enjoy and something that I wouldn't have been able to do, you know, as a version of myself five years ago, for example. Going back to 
just in a workplace sense, I think it's really important to acknowledge that gender pay gaps obviously exist, but an ethnic pay gap also completely exists. And it's something that I don't hear many people talk about. And I think diversity and inclusion in a workplace is one thing, but also considering the equal pay, regardless of your ethnicity also, is so important to continue conversations about and for people of color to not be afraid to have those conversations because it is scary. And I think one thing that I've noticed is that when you're from an immigrant family or when you're from a background that hasn't necessarily been part of a corporate world for generations, you're not armed with the negotiation skills or even just what to expect when you're going into those sorts of conversations uh, versus someone who's grown up with two parents with in executive positions in large, large firms and their parents were also, you know, in the business realm. Like, I just noticed there are advantages of that and disadvantages of coming from different backgrounds that don't necessarily have that. And I would really like to see resources or companies going out and providing those types of resources for people and really see more actions versus headlines about inclusivity. Nice. Well, um, thank you so much for joining me and for this discussion. It's been super enlightening. I always love our conversations because (laughs) you are able to talk about things at several levels. Thanks, Teo. (laughs) I always love catching up with you. We've always had really good, you know, conversations like this from the start. I just remember the first time I met you and I was like, oh my God, an Asian journalist. (laughs) (laughs) And I would just like kind of latched onto you and I was like, I'm going to make you my friend. I'm glad. (laughs) I'm glad that we got to meet each other. Yeah. We were like the two Asian people amongst a humongous white tech conference. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about cannabis and cannabis use, you can follow Kaya's educational account on Instagram at the handle at Bellas Who Blaze. It is a wonderful, non-judgmental platform designed to educate and empower on all things weed. And don't forget to share, rate, and follow this podcast if you haven't done so already.